1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation.
2: Please help us. We're, we're here. We, we need help. When we sit here in our island, we sit, we sit as Australians. When we stand and we hold hands and we sing the national anthem, it states... And we sing it with pride, for let us all rejoice, advance Australia fair. And shouldn't that be recognised like we should be all, you know, standing and supporting each other, being Australians. G'day, welcome to
3: the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Joining me is Lynn Doe. Hello, Lynn.
0: Hey Dan, how are you going?
3: I'm good. This is our third greatest moral podcast of our generation. We are making headway here. Last week's was, or last month's rather, was with Osha Gunsberg and Mike Cannonbrooks, which I thought was pretty good actually.
0: It was great. I had so much positive feedback and I think so much disbelief that you and I could reel in such big talent. <laughs>
3: That's right. So Bill Gates, if you're out there, give us a call.
0: We're ready. We're ready.
3: <laughs> uh, now, this is on the Irrational Fear feed and it happens once a month. It is chats with climate leaders and the guests this month are absolutely, undeniably climate leaders, Uh, and you'll find out a little bit more about them just in a second. Um, Before we do that, I just want to thank our new Patreon supporters, Damien Payne and Philip Boothby. It's very nice of you. If you want to support Irrational Fear and the greatest moral podcast of our generation, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Irrational Fear. Another way you can support Irrational Fear is to offset the carbon emissions from your car with Go Neutral. For every $90 sticker, Go Neutral, by 3.5 tonnes of carbon offsets, which is about the... uh, average yearly emissions for a car and then five bucks of that comes to us and you get a little sticker, get to put it on the back of your car, get to virtual signal to all those other fossil fuel burning machines out there.
0: It's how everyone wants to be stuck in traffic behind a self-righteous person that's, who's, you know, carbon offsetted all of their emissions. That's
3: right, yeah. People behind you will go, oh, that person's better than me. Oh, whatever. I'm recording my end of the greatest moral podcast of our generation on the land of the Gadigal in your Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. Despite global warming,
1: a rational fear... Is adding a little more hot air with long form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought greatest.
4: Mass extinction.
1: Moral. We're facing a man made disaster. Podcast.
4: They're the climate criminals
1: of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Boom for short.
3: All right, Linz, let's get straight into the climate news for this month. Victoria is going to be home to the largest battery in the Southern Hemisphere. Hey, you're a Victorian. How does that make you feel?
0: Makes me feel great. Between COVID lockdown, one of the longest in Australia, and, you know, proof that sometimes bigger is better. I'm super (laughs) excited to be home to the biggest battery.
3: This is great. This is like a a classic pissing contest between Victoria and South Australia. This one is is also a Tesla battery, but it's going to be double the size of the South Australian battery.
0: It's all about competition. Although I have to say, SA isn't lagging behind either. They've got their new renewable hydrogen project that's going to come online sometime soon. So I guess... um, Maybe Victoria's going to get a new hydrogen project soon as well.
3: Oh, everyone should have a new re- hydrogen project. It's like what you do in 2021. Do you know Do you know anything more about that hydrogen project?
0: Not at all, other than it's that interesting thing where hydrogen can be renewable and sometimes it isn't renewable as well. So I think it's important to note that this one will be renewable and um, that SA's already sourcing half of its energy from wind or solar, which is pretty, pretty awesome.
3: I saw this week that solar has made up 44% of... Uh, electricity in the grid in Australia this week, which is pretty amazing.
0: It is. It's all of these numbers that I think we rarely get to hear about when you just listen to the climate news. It's all doom and gloom (laughs) and you're like, wait, Australia all of these things are happening.
3: Well, Lynn, speaking of doom and gloom, the USA is out of the Paris Climate Accord as of this week. But don't fret because Joe Biden, who is, of course, as we know, his president-elect, said uh, last week, today the Trump administration officially left the Paris Climate Agreement and in exactly 77 days, a Biden administration will rejoin it. Now, the good news here, Lynn, is that it took two years for the USA to get out of the Paris Agreement, but it only, it's only going to take about 30 days for them to get back in.
0: Super exciting. Party in the USA, party in the Paris Agreement. It's all of the good news to come. But I think more importantly than just Biden getting back on board with the Paris Agreement is all of the plans and initiatives he has in place, a $2 trillion climate plan, which seems really unthinkable in Australia. And hopefully that means we'll start to pick up and not be left behind.
3: No, the only thing that will get you $2 trillion is if you have a sports ground in a marginal electorate and you need a women's change room.
0: This is why there are so many football fields near me, I think, (laughs) that now have all of these, like, construction works happening. I've noticed during COVID.
3: This is going to be hard for the Democrats coming into this because, of course, climate change previously used to be something in the near future, but it is happening right now. Climate effects are happening so rapidly. Uh, Extreme weather is causing so much havoc uh, across the world and the USA, so they're going to have to really work hard at trying to convince people to do the right thing here. One interesting big power broker, John Podesta, who is a notorious lobbyist uh, himself running the Hillary Clinton campaigns, he is actually joining hands with the Sunrise Movement to try and get fossil fuel lobbyists out of the Biden-Harris White House, which is incredible.
0: There's nothing like the old establishment joining with the new establishment to actually forge the new way forward. Um, I don't think any world really wants to see just John Podesta running things or just Sunrise running things, so hopefully they'll forge a new future of what's politically possible. Oh, What
3: is it Obama says? Uh, the arc of history bonds towards justice, but, but it zigs and it zags? Is that what he says? Yep.
0: <laughs> it's just really one big scribble. Yeah. Um, well, depends who's drawing.
3: Let's just touch on this, Lynn uh, Joel Fitzgibbon has left the front bench of the Labor Party over climate change. Finally, uh, Mr Cole himself, member for Hunter, has said, see you later, I am out of here, there's no way Labor can win if they take up a strong climate change position, Um, which I don't necessarily think is true. Uh, I think he's going to be eating his words in about mm, one year's time.
0: Yep, but there's nothing like getting out of the way. I think if you're going to be a sook about things all the time and not a team player, just get out of the way for people who are ready to do the work. So all for it.
3: Yeah, Fitzgibbon, notoriously on the right-hand side of the uh, Labor factions, he's been copying it not only from the left-hand faction but also the right faction. Uh, Some members of Parliament on the right faction of Labor called him the idiot from the Hunter.
4: Mm,
0: mm, mm. (laughs) Uh, So many people we're saying goodbye to, um in recent weeks with all of these political announcements.
3: Now, the other big news, news and bullshit now, Adani is changing their name. <laughs> Indian energy giant Adani is uh, is changing their name from Adani to the Bravis Mining and Resources Company. Uh, according to Adani, Bravus means brave in Latin, but according to Latin experts, it doesn't quite mean brave, Lynn.
0: Exactly. It feels like no one at the Adani or Bravest Corporation went to a private school where, if you had one of those school blazers growing up, you would know that fortis is what means brave and courageous. <laughs> or even if you'd watched anything said in that sort of Roman Roman times. But it actually means crooked, deformed, some sort of mercenary. Um, I've it's got cut Surprisingly, throat. very apt.
3: Uh, an, 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 an ANU professor said it means barbarians and desperado or an assassin. <laughs> I thought that is absolutely delightful that you have this coal company going in there trying to pretend to be noble, but in fact what the reality is is that they aren't and this is what they've done.
0: Exactly. It sort of arose by any other name. Um, I guess a disastrous climate project by any other name still is just as disastrous.
3: This harkens back to the time when BP changed their name in 2001 to Beyond yes. Petroleum, and I think uh, I think it was only like four years later they were like, oh, uh, let's get rid of the Beyond Petroleum. We don't need it. It didn't go so <laughs> we well. But it was
0: like a really good PR stunt for a while, and I think anytime those sort of name changes happen, I always have to pause and check myself. Is this someone parroting? the company? Or is this actually real news? Or is this fake news? And I can't believe that in this case, with the Adani situation, it is real.
3: And one last bit of good news. Uh, A young Queensland man, Mark McVeigh, has made his super fund one of Australia's biggest, take the risks of climate change seriously. He took rest super to court, basically, because they weren't transparent on how their investments were um, polluting the world. And now REST has kind of come to this agreement that, that not only they will be net zero emissions, but also the investments they have in their super fund will be net zero as well, which is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it's great that um, the only good news coming out of Queensland isn't just the state of origin (laughs) results, but also something that hopefully will bode really well for all of the other climate litigation claims out there in Australia.
3: His lawyer, David Barnden, we've had on Irrational Fear in the past. Uh, You may remember David Barnden from Irrational Fear when he was putting together class action with teenagers, suing the government for their future. Uh, Now he's done this Rest Super case. And coming up, he's got a case where he's taking to court the Commonwealth Equities basically saying that, you know, you you can't buy bonds in Australia because Australian bonds are going to be worth nothing because climate catastrophes are going to wipe us out.
0: Yep, yep. And I think it's, you know, it gets a little bit nitty-gritty and in legalese and can feel a bit boring, but I think the precedent that this sets is really important, not just for those climate litigation cases, but what every other super fund in Australia now has to do, Mm. regardless if they claim to be ethical or otherwise, because no one wants to be taken to court by one of their members.
3: You're absolutely right there. And I think this is a big win for David Barden, I think like he's had in the last year, he's had three big cases come to the front and setting precedents for all those things. I think there are really quiet people out there who are just chipping away with their own power to make things happen. And I think um, people like that are pretty extraordinary.
0: Exactly. I think if your super fund hasn't yet divested from fossil fuels, definitely now is the time to write them a quick letter and say, "Hey, look at what's happening with Breast Super. What are you going to do in response?" <laughs>
3: P.S. if you want to do an out-of-court settlement, my phone number is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation.
3: So for today's Goonpook, I speak with two people who are at the front of a legal and existential fight for climate action. Yessi Mosby and Sophie Marginac are taking the Australian government to the United Nations over their willful neglect of human rights due to their lack of climate action. It's two interviews, one after the other. Yesi was on the phone from his home in Massig, which is also known as York Island, so it's a bit crackly. And I caught Sophie first thing in the morning in London, so it's crackly for another reason. (laughs) We're both a bit tired. Yesi Mosby is an artisan craftsman who lives on Massig Island, so-called York Island. In the corner of the Torres Strait, Massig is a remote teardrop-shaped Coral Cay Island that is closer to Papua New Guinea than the Australian continent. It's a tropical paradise. It's home for Yesi's family and they can trace their history on that island for thousands and thousands of years. But this fragile place at the top of the Torres Strait is disappearing. The land is slowly being washed away by rising sea levels and for Yesi and his family, the land is everything. It's their culture, it's their religion their library, their encyclopedia, it's their town hall, it's where they've stored their stories of their family and their ancestors for over 60,000 years. And in the last couple of decades, they've been losing it bit by bit. So for Yesi, this fight is purely existential. And as Australians, we have let him down. As well as being an award-winning artist, Yesi is also the power plant attendant of the island, and I had a chat with him a couple of weeks ago as he was walking to the power plant to get the generator running. After a few minutes of small talk, I just leaped into the big questions. Can you remember the first time you ever heard of the idea of global warming or
2: climate change? Back in the days, in the 90s, we didn't understand about it and none of the elders here in the village understand it. Mm. and. Back in the days, we were told like where we stand on the beach. They would tell us like, "This used to be the bush, and the island used to be right right out there." The beach, it's been taken away and eaten. Even in the
3: nineties, even in the nineties, you were recognizing that uh, land was being taken away from you.
2: Yes, but not as not as now. Like when when I mean land is being taken away, like a meter would be taken away. In a year or so,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and gradually it it's been washed away. But now uh, I'll give you an incident about April month last year. We've seen in just in that one day, we've seen three meters taken got taken away just in in a matter of hours. Oh my God! And we've seen the we've seen our home got washed away, and we've seen our ancestral remains started to be take like the sea was taking our ancestors' remains, our our genealogy, our lineage has been washed away. Some we tried to save, some we could not save. Two years ago I was um my wife line, my bloodline, my wife's bloodline, me and my kids, we were running down on the beach and helping families to pick up um, my wife, I think sixth generation my wife is, and picked up her remains, tried to save what what we could. But the second inundation took her.
3: Oh my gosh, that must have been pretty stressful. How were you feeling uh, on that day? What what kind of thoughts were going through your your brain and your heart on that day?
2: Looking at that, like look, looking like on that particular day, automatically, like you, it was it was like it's a must. You have to do it and stuff like that. Otherwise, my children won't see, you know, their bloodline or their ancestors. Who practically, if it wasn't for her they wouldn't be here today. It was like a, a fight to try and to save her from Mother Nature. But Mother Nature practically took her that night and took her all of her remains. It's it's like a whitewash now out from our lineage where you know where we could go and say and identify a loved one and, and tell our children like this grand great 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 grandmother here, this is what she is for you. And you don't, we don't have anything there now to go and say this this is your grandmother, like she's not there anymore. Mm. It was tough in a way to explain to the kids because like, you know, no, no kids should be walking and picking up the ancestors remains. Um, you know, they should walk on the beach with their family and pick up shells and stuff like that.
3: I can't agree with you more. Mm. Tell me about, growing up in the 90s and how back to that moment where you're talking about how folks didn't quite understand what was happening, when did you, you personally notice that things were changing in the environment around you personally?
2: Personally, it started here in the 2000s mm. when I moved back out and um, I realised that when uh, we had some scientists coming out and they were predicting about we most probably will, be re- will be, have to be relocated and stuff like that. That's when it got me thinking now and had my thinking caps on and said, well, this is not like, you know, it could be stopped in a certain way. Mm. Yes. And that's what driven me to understand and to go a bit deeper into understanding that what's happening now, there is, you know, there is something behind that which is causing all of this so it wasn't like through my through the 90s and stuff like that we weren't so much educated in about in about um climate change and global warming yeah
3: so how did you learn how did what were the things that you did to kind of learn and how did you share that knowledge with others
2: well we had a lady she used to work here she she became our good friend and she's now a part of like she's a part of our clan a part of our family and and um she helped us I really went personally and asked like I really need to know more I want to know more
0: Mm.
2: because it was out of fear I was fearing both my children and their children after them
3: what kind of role did she have was she a teacher or was she a scientist or
2: she's a lawyer a lawyer and she used to work here in the Torres Strait and she looked and understand that we didn't understand Um, being so remote out from mainland Australia, and living so in such a remote area, she noticed that we knew what was happening, but we really didn't know what was the cause of, of it. So, so she started to give us awareness. When the scientists came out now, that's when my eyes opened and stuff like that, and the fear struck me. What year was that? She was here like five years ago, but I really practically sat down with her to to know and gain more knowledge about all of this year, what's happening two years ago. Right. And when she was here, she was here and witnessing right at the same time because all the airlines had to be shut down. No planes could fly in and no planes could fly out. So they got stranded here. And while they were stranded here, they've seen... Exactly now what we face every monsoon season. Uh,
3: is that um, Sophie Marinak?
2: That's that's correct, yes. Right.
3: So 2015 she came out to the Torres Strait to check it out and have a look around and only a couple of years ago that's when really a major education kind of process was happening with people that live on the island, on the islands. Yes. It, it feels like all of a sudden you've been hit with something that is unexpected, whereas a lot of other people around the country probably knew a lot more. It must, be, must feel really strange to learn something that a whole bunch of other people knew, knew about and it must feel rude that no one ever told you about it.
2: Yeah. We always ask people to come and invite, like we've invited the government to come to come to our island to have a look for their eyes and look what we what we see every day the changes uh, in the life, life how it's changed dramatically the fear which I still hear even still today have is we don't want to be refugees in our own country mm. we have a right to live and Australia should be a country which should be so proud that Australia is the only country in the world who has totally two different race of indigenous people who lives on the country which has been over, been here for over 60,000 years.
3: Yeah, totally.
2: And to lose one is like an amputation within the Torres Strait people because what, like when I was talking earlier in how the blood connections and how are we connected to the other neighboring tribes and stuff like that. And to lose an island within the probably next 30 to 50 years is devastating and it's it, it will affect people even more mentally, physically, and spiritually. Masigia, the beautiful thing about my home, the aura around this island, it welcomes you. Mm -hmm. When you fly around my island and you come down to land, the island welcomes you before you even touch your foot on the island, (laughs) and when you walk here, this whole island is sacred to us because our, our ancestral remains is scattered right through this island. This island is not only an island which provided us with shelter, protection, and food and water. It's our library. It's our school. It's our maternity ward. Our grandparents got, you know, gave birth on this island. We farewell our, our families on this island. Our whole, whole lineage, our genealogy, our whole lineage is laid and based upon this island. And not only the people who are living here on Masik, but also the families who, which was married out and blessed other islands around the Torres, Torres Strait who have blood connection back to this island. This island is love, this island is powerful, and it's, it's sacred, it's our home.
3: What kind of conversations are you having with your families and friends about climate change right now? Like, what 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 do you talk about?
2: We always talk about every time when it comes to the full moon time, when it comes to the peak of the king tides. Mm. We talk about it a lot, especially when the wind rises and stuff like that. It's it it, uh, concerns. It leaves great concerns to us. Yeah, and we always talk about like how. Can we try and save what we have? And how can we try and preserve what we have now from further inundation and further erosion? How does it
3: feel to know that your people are not necessarily responsible for climate change, yet your people must be the first to immediately adapt and change yourselves and your culture because of it? Does it make you angry?
2: It, 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 it makes us feel like, you know, it makes us feel like little kids where like little kids where they, you know, get, they, they're being neglected. Mm. They're being child abuse. That's what we feel. Right. We're feeling because we know contributors to what's happening now, but yet we're the first ones to get the cane. We're the first ones to get caught. We're, the, we're suffering. Yeah. Does it
3: feel lonely in that same respect?
2: It feels lonely in this respect here because when we cry out, we're not being heard. Yeah. We're trying our best and we're trying to go through every, like we, we, we know the saying that like, you know, when one door is closed, there's many more will open. So we are running now and trying to open every single doors and seeking help. The funny thing is our our forefathers, my both of my grandfathers, they joined the army to fight for the country. All of us and we're, we're, our our forefathers, our our grandparents, they've all contributed so, so much to Australia to the government, and yet they we're still fighting here at the back here and trying to get like you know recognize and say like like please help us. We're, we're here. We, we need help. When we sit here in our island, we sit we sit as Indigenous Australians. We sit as Australians, when we stand and we hold hands and we sing the nas- national anthem, it states and we sing it with pride for let us all rejoice, advance Australia fair. And shouldn't that be recognized like we should be all, you know, standing and supporting each other being Australians? Yes,
3: I want to know about this UN project. Tell me, what are you doing about taking the Australian government to task over climate action at the UN? How does that work?
2: First of all, we invited the Australian government to come up to our home to, to 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 have a look in what we're facing. He refused our invitation, which made us go a f- bit further. Like I was saying earlier, that our voice is not being met. We're singing out for help. The only thing we want is to reduce all the ammunition, uh, the thing for the the mining's and stuff like that by reducing them. It will give us better chance to live longer here on our island. Mm. And this is why we're taking the next step to the UN.
3: It must feel so unfair that a, one group of Australians can profit off the emissions that are going out and yet your home is literally being taken away from you because of it and because of other people around the world. That just must feel so unfair.
2: So unfair it's so unfair it's just like we we're, we're running around screaming our heads off and only us only our, our, only like you know only we are hearing our own voice tell me more
3: about the united nations project how did you develop this idea
2: we made us uh, to go down this earth because of the paris agreement and we said like if this is not going to like thing if the governments not going to respond to us and stuff like that this is where we're going to go so we sit help and the lady, uh, Sophie, came up and said she would love to help us and support us in this.
3: Great. And where are you now? What's, wh- what's the, what are the next steps with this project?
2: The next step now is, is at this moment it's like a waiting game, but it's most probably going to be next year. The COVID-19 is playing a very big part, which um, now is like actually like a waiting game.
3: You don't have a lot of time
2: to wait. No. As as we're waiting we we we're, we're looking at our home home getting eaten away.
3: Have you met other people around the world who support your cause?
2: We we've met through like Zoom link up and a lot of feedbacks we get um from the the petition of uh, our islands our home we have big mob like support which which from our mother's our mother country australia and throughout the world as well to see that they um supporting us is like you know it's it lifts us up more
3: what are the young people who live and work in the torres strait how do they react to climate change and what are their views about the future are they hopeful
2: for them like when we when when, when i sit and talk to other other young youths here on masig They look at their future that there's no sunshine at the end Hmm. of the tunnel. They're just living life as we live life now and trying to save what we can. The great fear of them is having their children living down on mainland Australia who don't have the sacred connection back to country.
3: The thought of that must make you feel incredibly disconnected. Big
2: time. Very, very much, uh, big time disconnected. What we, what we practice here uh, in our traditional customary laws won't be the same if we're going to be trying to practicing our, you know, traditional culture somewhere else. It's going to be loss of of our connection to our country, to our culture and our life livelihood.
3: If worse comes to worse and you have to move country, do you think there is hope to rebuild culture at all?
2: No. Being a cultural person myself, I've grew up round very strong cultural um, upbringing, and I, I can see that it's it's not going to happen. At this moment, our families who reside down in mainland Australia, we are the we are the cultural link which connects them back to country.
3: What about for you, Jesse? What hope do you have ab- about drastic action that this government will take in the next couple of years?
2: I'm believing in faith, and I know that the Australia government will eventually act upon their words and help us. I really don't want to go down in the neg- negativities and think about negativities, but you know, every every now and then, negativities come, come into my mind. But I'm trying to stand on positivity and try and think positive about the outcome would be great, and it would be a success, and our home will be saved.
3: Yes, um, thank you so much for joining us on Irrational Fear and thank you so much for sharing your story about Masig. It sounds like a beautiful place and I hope one day COVID will be over and we can come and do a live show in the Torres Strait for you.
2: It would be such a blessing if you could come up. And you you, you you will be much more welcomed.: <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be holding a big feast for you.: <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> Well, if uh, if I get to come up, maybe I can um, I'll tweet Scott Morrison from Torres Strait Island and tell him I'm there, and he can come up too.
2: Yes, would be great. You know who you
3: know what would be great would be um, It'd be great for you to build a house for Andrew Bolt, Beachside, a beautiful house. And call it the Andrew Bolt House, and convince Andrew Bolt to move to Massig th- to move to Masig, and so he can see what a beautiful place it is, and so he can he can be convinced that uh, climate change isn't happening.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll probably try. I'll build, build him a, a leaf house. <laughs> a, tra- a traditional house. So you'll so it, so have a first first insight in how we lived.
3: <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a stark kind of reminder when you're talking about uh, singing the national anthem and being Australian and having a culture that is so unique and separated from the homogenous Australia we all consume in the big cities. It's such a precious thing that you have that... I feel like so many people don't realise that we have it together, and I. It would be such a shame to to lose it because we were being ignorant and, uh, and we ran out of time and we just decided to burn more coal instead. Yeah. What is the best way that? People who live in so-called Australia can support you. What is, what is something everyday Australians who are living in capital cities, who probably don't think a lot about the Torres Strait? Yeah. How can how can they support you?
2: We have a website which is called Our Islands Our Home dot mm. org, and you just type that in Google. Our Islands Our Home dot org. There is a Petition? It'll only take you a minute to, to sign a petition, but by your signing of the petition will save an ancient race of people to be refugees in their own country. Your support will save a race of people where we could stay and still sing from our own soil Advance Australia Fair.
3: It's a privilege to talk with you and it's a privilege to share your story on, on my podcast. And I want... Everyone who's listened to this to encourage them to go to the Our Island our home webpage and put their name on the petition and let that group of people know that, um, that your voice is important as well. Jesie, thank you so much. Thank you. You have a blessed day. That was Jesse Mosby. Um, Lynn, have you met any of the Torres Strait eight complainants before?
0: Yes, I have had the good fortune of meeting some of the Torres Strait eight before and hearing the story, I think just as you were saying, it's always a reminder of how sad the possible climate impacts could be in this country where some of the first refugees we will see will be some of our First Nations people, um, but also still really hopeful and inspiring to see how they're taking legal action, they're doing what they can, and it's up to us not to feel pity for them, but actually how do we stand in solidarity is always the question I have in mind.
3: Yeah, and how can we value this culture more and recognise that, fuck, like we could lose an entire race of people, Uh, an entire culture will disappear if we don't take action.
0: Yeah, it's really, I think, unnerving to actually be reminded of that. It's just very, a combination of like humbling and eerie and just a real reminder of, this is the good fight that we're all trying to embark upon right now, and how do we step that up?
3: It's really interesting, like talking to him, he he he's about my age, and it's it's kind of funny like he's on a learning journey with the science as well as you know someone like me, and his but his fight is so much more existential than mine.
0: Yeah, and it's so much more confrontational as a result, right? I feel sometimes, even though you and I, we live and breathe climate, we can go to bed at night and be like, cool, okay, that was it for the day, I'll wake up again tomorrow. Mm. Um, But when it's hanging over you like that, I think it just permeates into absolutely everything.
3: Next up is Yesi's lawyer, Sophie Marginak, who's the one that's been putting together this landmark human rights complaint at the UN for the Torres Strait Aid. This is Sophie. Tell us about the first time you are in Torres Strait and why you were there?
4: So I first went to the Torres Strait in 2010 to work as a paralegal in native title law, so land rights law, and that meant that as part of my job I was lucky enough to fly around uh, to each of the outer islands of the Torres Strait and get to know the communities, uh, and it's such a beautiful and magical Of the world. I feel really privileged to have been able to experience that. So I was lucky enough to be able to go fishing and swimming on some of the beautiful coral reefs and even got used to the crocodiles.
3: And your work when you were there as a paralegal, can you kind of explain just the day to day? What was that about?
4: So basically, we represented the islanders in any negotiations relating to their land when anyone uh, wanted to. Develop anything on native title land, we would uh, represent them uh, in relation to that, and also working on native title claims themselves, such as the Torres Strait Regional Sea Claim, which was the first native title claim over sea territory and sea country in Australia.
3: Wow! Can you remember the first time meeting Yessie Mosby, and what was that like?
4: Yeah, of course I can. Uh, Yessie is just an all-around legend. When we first met, he was put forward as the representative for Asig Island by some of the elders, and I'd say that's because he's got such a real passion for the culture and traditions, and he's very young, but he knows so much about the cultural history of his family and takes the responsibility of being a, a young leader really seriously.
3: When, when we're talking about climate change with Yesi, he was saying, like, when he was first kind of noticing what was happening, he, everyone on the islands was, was noticing the effects of climate change, but they didn't understand why it was happening. You're one of the people that kind of helped them understand how this was happening and why it was happening. Can you walk us through that moment? Like, when did you start kind of letting people know there about climate change and how the earth was changing?
4: So uh, we visited the islands in late 2018 and early 2019 and conducted community consultations. Uh, And we also conducted an analysis of the legal options for the communities and discussed that with them. It was um, really hard to go through the scientific evidence with them and talk to them about the real risk that the islands are facing in in the coming decades.
3: When I was talking with Jesse, he was saying that the first step in this journey that they're on at the moment was to invite the Commonwealth to Messick to see the land be washed away. Uh, Can you talk us through that invitation? Who did you invite and when did you invite them and what was it like to try and get people to Messick?
4: So that invitation was was actually personally delivered by Kebe. Kebe Tamu is one of the uh, claimants. He's from Warbo Island, which is just next to Masig Island. and he actually went to New York for the climate conference in September 2019 last year and he personally delivered the letter to the to Australia's High Commissioner to the United Nations uh, in New York. And the Prime Minister did eventually respond several months later but declined the, the invitation to actually go up.
3: It said no. Said, I'm not going to go to Messick. I'm not going to have a look at this <laughs> this island being washed away.
4: I think, honestly, if he did go there, and, and I really do believe that if if anyone went there, I mean, you just immediately get what this is about, which is, and you can see why climate change is a human rights issue because you understand how deeply connected those communities are to their country. That connection must be experienced on those islands. If the people, and that's really the fundamental basis of the case, is that if the people can't be on their island, then that's a fundamental break with their culture and with their lives with dignity as Indigenous peoples.
3: I just want to go back to that letter. How did that decision get made to invite the Prime Minister to Messick or to Torres Strait? And, and can you talk us through the steps that you and locals there were kind of going through to kind of get this plan in action?
4: Throughout this process, uh, we've been working with the GBK, which is the Good Albaradarao Cod, which means a uh, warrior, place and that is the peak body for the native title prescribed bodies corporate in the torres strait it's it translates into english as the torres strait sea and land council so the board of gbk has been clear that even though the low-lying islands are, are most uh, well are, are affected and are leading the way in this case they're doing it on behalf of the whole region which is which is affected in in different ways the letter we we worked with gbk to approve the text of that letter and kebe took it to new york where he was invited to speak at a conference on uh, human rights and climate change with young climate and environmental activists from around the world and lots of indigenous people from around the world as well
3: so a few months later the federal government said we're not going to come visit or scott morrison said he's not going to come visit what was the next step for you in that in that case
4: well, to be honest, um, my focus is on the legal side, so I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm the lawyer. Uh, the the Islanders is GBK and and we've partnered with um, 350.org Australia, who are assisting the communities with a uh, local campaign. They are running a website and a petition and various social media accounts and really trying to work with other grassroots groups and getting some cross-Indigenous solidarity, which I believe is going quite well. But my focus has really been on working on the case and bringing those human rights arguments to the UN Human Rights Committee in Geneva and attempting to, we hope, make new law on This topic because this this is the first case where these issues have have come so squarely before the committee, and we think it really is an excellent test case because these islands are some of the most climate vulnerable in the world, and Australia is such an outlier and such a laggard when it comes to global climate policy. I mean, unfortunately, Australia has performed far worse than many other rich countries. Its policies are simply. Way behind, and believe that's quite clear from the evidence. So, uh, we're hopeful to have a good decision. No matter what the decision is, I think it really will set a precedent of some kind. And we're hoping that the Human Rights Committee will prefer. you And
3: how long do you think this process is going to take? Like, w- at what point will you get an answer from from the UN?
4: I suspect they will make a decision next year. And we're very hopeful that, that it's earlier in the year rather than later. But, of course, these processes do move relatively slowly.
3: And what are the actual ramifications for for the Australian government if the UN comes down on the side of the Torres Strait Islanders and, and the people of Messig and... Uh, I mean, the, Australia has a long history of ignoring the UN. Is I guess is kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Are there any Are there any actual ramifications? Will there be a reason to be compelled to to change the way they go about climate action?
4: I think the Australian government does have a terrible record in in relation to complying with decisions of the Human Rights Treaty bodies. However, other states around the world do comply with those decisions, and so I think. It does have the power to make a difference globally and not just for Australia. And it also will mean that, I mean, it will clarify the law and move the jurisprudence forward and I think really give the claimants and their communities a huge moral victory. They want people to know about what's going on on their islands. They want to tell the world about that and they want their fellow Australians to see how precious the Torres Strait is and how that, that connection, that cultural connection is at risk. So I think it's an opportunity to show the Australian public not only that Australia is really behind when it comes to climate change action on the global stage and have that authoritative decision on that, but also to show that these are this is the cultural heritage of all of us, of our country, and that's what's being lost. And, you know, similarly to what happened recently in WA, there was quite an outcry over Rio Tinto's decision on the and Gorge. And we're going to see far worse cultural destruction of cultural heritage. And as I said, that belongs to all Australians. And that's really a tragedy.
3: Why do you think there is such a disconnect between, as someone who has lived and worked in Torres Strait, why do you think there's a bit of a disconnect between the Torres Strait Islands and, and mainstream Australia? <laughs>
4: Well, practically, uh, it's quite, it's very far away from most Australian capital cities. And it's really quite expensive and hard to get to. So I think that does put travellers off. So that makes it very special because it really is, it really does take quite a bit of effort to get up there. But um, there are lots of Torres Strait Islander people in Queensland, especially. But I think you know, Australia is generally relatively segregated still and I don't think we've really recovered from the truth of our history. You know, we don't really see many Indigenous stories uh, in the mainstream media uh, and in TV and newspapers, which I think is a real shame and and probably a real barrier to uh, that that connection.
3: How do you think we can bridge that disconnect? What's the... What's the best way to kind of tell this story?
4: I think, well, for me, I think, you know, the media has such a huge role to play and, uh, you know, really just in bringing those those stories out and having people uh, hear and really understand what's uh, happened to, what's happened in Australian history, obviously education as well, in schools I don't think that uh there's that much focus indigenous history yeah but then I think you know as a lawyer to be honest fundamentally we need a uh, constitutional change and I think you know what happened with the all the restatement from the heart was of the worst tragedies on travesties of Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership um I think that was just disgusting the way that that effort was treated. I mean indigenous leaders who worked so hard on that all the statement from the heart. And it was, you know, a moment to actually create real change. I don't personally don't think we will have true reconciliation in Australia until we change the constitution. Constitution and and, and that is essentially a treaty that um sets up the fundamental building blocks of our nation and and uh that is that is what we need to do and and that I, think, I don't think we can move forward until we've had come to terms with the past, and that's the basic truth of reconciliation is you have, to, you have to be honest about the past and then you have to come together and decide to walk forward together into a new future, and I think that's what we need to do.
3: As someone who's based in London and, you know, you, you work all over the world, how do you explain that pain to people around the world <laughs> that Australia has? How do you explain how backward we are? all the time
4: well i love constitutional law so i think i go back to (laughs) i go back to the the fundamentals which are that the legal system has always been systemically uh racist quite frankly and systemically as undervalued and devalued uh, indigenous culture and that i think permeates through our whole society unfortunately and and it it's it fundamentally, if there's not that recognition in our governing documents and in our, our way of seeing the history of our country, then then um, I think that, that, that means that people discount Indigenous history and, and people, unfortunately, and that's carried through into everything culturally. In this
3: project you're working on right now, what are the crucial timelines, the time markers that are coming down that, Um, will be met and when is it I guess when is it a good time to make a lot of noise about this this particular case?
4: The government will the Australian government will respond in a few months time probably four months. Uh, I, I think that probably when we get the decision we really want that to be amplified as much as possible. But as I said, the, the Islanders are working with 350.org Australia and they've got quite a lot going on now. They're doing various um, activities, I believe, through Queensland. Obviously, COVID has been really tricky. The Torres Strait Islands are pretty vulnerable and so they they do need to put their health first and avoid uh, too much travel. But we are doing lots of things online and uh, I think if if people are engaged, then they could write to their local MP, especially if they live in Queensland, and really just talk to their friends and relatives about climate change and about this case and about how climate change is putting at risk one of the oldest continuing cultures on Earth. But in terms of timing, your question was on timing, but I'd say probably February-ish will be a moment and then uh, hopefully we'll have the decision, I, I hope, in the third quarter of next year. It's, it's, re- it's really tricky for me to, um, I'm sort of licking my finger and putting it in the air, and, uh, but around about the third quarter, I hope, yeah.
3: What about you? What, for you, who are your heroes in this space? Like who do you look at and go, damn, oh, you know, what they've done in, in the past is great and I'm a big fan of their work and I'm trying to do that?
4: I think probably my heroes are the political leaders and elders in the Torres Strait who are constantly working so hard in this system that's set up against them to get their voices heard and the the needs of their communities heard by government. And um, especially, I mentioned the Uluru statement from the heart, but all of the work that went into that uh, and the Indigenous leaders who who came together to to build that, I think that was really impressive and. Uh, and such a huge achievement.
1: GM Poog,
3: the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Well, that was Sophie. Thank you very much, uh, Lynn, for joining us on uh, on the greatest moral podcast of our generation.
0: Always great to be here.
3: And big thank you to Yesi, Sophie, and Jacob Brown on the Teppanyaki timeline. Uh, please, if you like the show chip in on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Irrational Fear. Right now though I have got a sneak peek of a new podcast called Staying Human. It's a podcast designed to put the moment we're living in right now in perspective. Uh, Life is hard because we're living through a dehumanising pandemic. We need to take care of ourselves and each other and uh, it's all about what humans need to get by. It is hosted by uh, a humanist chaplain at Harvard. His name is Greg Epstein and I had a listen to it and it's pretty good. So I've got five minutes for you to have a listen to. And if you enjoy it, check out Staying Human
1: on your favourite podcast player. Thanks a lot. See you next month
3: or next week on Irrational Fear. (laughs) Thanks, Lynn. Bye.
1: When I dropped my son off on Tuesday, March 10th, I had no idea that the world as I knew it was about to change forever. (laughs) I barely remember our morning routine now, the one from before. My wife would rush out the door by 8. Axel's daycare center opened at 8.30, but we straggled there around 9.45. We did something different every morning. I'd wrap him in painter's tape, and we'd sing Tape on me (laughs) to the tune of Aha. He'd climb on my knees and and we'd play Jump the Shark. We got obsessed with YouTube videos of Russian excavators stuck in quicksand. It, It was the first consistent, conscious experience of unconditional love in my adult life. And it was slowly starting to make me feel human in a way I never really had before. On March 10th, I dropped him off And I pulled out my phone to check Twitter on the way home. Harvard just gave students five days to pack all of their things, move out, and go home. Read the tweet. Many can't go home because of costs and travel restrictions, and they provided no guidance. And we're expected to go to class for the rest of this week? That was Hakeem, a senior computer science major from Jamaica. I'd met him a few months earlier after a thread he tweeted went viral. A beautifully self-aware, vulnerable reflection on possible racial bias in the ways computer science faculty sometimes engage with students like him. Hakim is a gifted writer. He is a passionate and compassionate young leader who turned a bad experience into a platform to fight for thousands of other students who might not be so able to fight for themselves. So it it crushed me to think, if even he can't cope with this situation, stranded, shut down, afraid, unsure what to do next, much less how to manage the pressures of college, then how were others going to manage? Not just at Harvard, but all across the country and, and even the world. I responded without my typical overthinking. Hakim, this is what chaplains and other advocates are for. If it's virtually impossible to go home, then you or others in your position will likely need to ask to stay. If anyone at Harvard gives you any crap about that whatsoever, that is when you call somebody like me. My name is Greg Epstein, and I'm the humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT. That's like clergy for atheists, agnostics, and the non-religious. I've dedicated my life to helping people for people's sake in good times and in times just like this. Anyway, responding to Hakeem, I continued... Let me or others be your advocate with Harvard administrators or faculty who need to hear this student is not going anywhere because they can't. So you must provide safe and comfortable living spaces and extensions, etc. must be provided to deal with this stress. No ifs, ands, or buts. As hundreds of thousands of people liked or responded to Hakeem's thread, I was shocked to see them also respond to my response by the thousands. This made me cry, responded the Daily Beast's Molly Jong Fast, an influential writer whose mother's influential writing influenced me as a teenager. Doctors, actors, scholars, and dozens of random strangers stopped by on my page to comment or say thanks, but all I'd done was send literally a couple of tweets. The truth is, the reality of the pandemic was setting in, and we all wanted, we all needed to to cry, to cry our faces off, as one distinguished philosophy professor friend of mine put it. We were all looking for some human kindness, myself included, in the face of a restless and ignorant virus just beginning to end millions and disrupt billions of lives.